1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Let's go. Hurry up. It's not my fault. Just shut up and run. Hold it right there. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no, we're not ready for your audition. Just take him, he's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. Old-school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, are you the uh, consultant? If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me, no. I just like the name so much, I can't get rid of it. So what do you do? I'm a private detective. She thinks I'm a detective. Of all the idiot things to do. My sister was murdered. Are you going to help me? I got to check my schedule. Can you help me, Harry? Because you're not going to help me find somebody else. Sometimes I have other... My caseload is pretty... Thank you. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad to you. Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. Do you have the corpse? I, I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. Ow. That starts with a kiss. Why'd you lie to me? It was an excuse to stay around you, so I mean, I think. Ow! Did I just cut off your finger? Yeah. It's on the floor. Pick it up. Pick it up. And ends with a bang. Where? Is the girl. You put a live round in that gun. Oh, yeah. There was like an 8% chance. Hey, who taught you math? Okay. Harmony! Robert Downey Jr. What do you think? I'm stupid? Val Kilmer. Yes. I think you're stupid. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Oh, hell. Kiss me. What? Kiss me. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. These lessons suck. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? 
We're a week away from Christmas, and I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And in honor of the upcoming Christmas holiday, I ask people what Christmas movie I should be watching, reviewing, and my good friend Dave Weeder has deemed it worthy to join me on his suggestion, which is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And first of all, welcome aboard, Dave. It's always good to have you back. Thank you for having me and indulging me in this movie. Not a problem at all. Uh, I would say Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, now that I've seen it, because I had never seen it before, probably would would engender similar debates as Die Hard to whether or not it is a Christmas movie, which you could put in quotations. Uh, and, you know, it takes place at Christmas time. There are mentions of Christmas. There's Christmassy music in the background at times. So I'm, I'm with I'm 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 on the it's a Christmas movie side of the argument. Mm-hmm. But I can understand where certain people would say, well, this doesn't really have a, any Christmassy message to it. Therefore, it's not a Christmas movie. Uh, I don't know if you have anything more to add to that argument, but I figure I'll throw that out to you first. Well, you have you have a main character who dresses in a Santa outfit. Um, you have sort of <laughs> much like Die Hard Christmas Miracles that, yeah, sure, they can be interpreted differently, but it, it has the right vibe. And it it immediately makes you think of Lethal Weapon, which is appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm on board with Lethal Weapon being a Christmas movie as well, just as an aside. So it's in the same vein as that. Yes, I mean some people will put it on the on the cusp. I I think it's a Christmas movie. But I, I totally get the people who say, oh, it's not a Christmas movie because there's not a Christmas message. I'm over, I'm okay with that argument, and I don't really have a problem. With the people who feel that way, I don't feel the need to engage them in any debate or anything like that. So, you know, to each their own. I kind of that's that's been my attitude towards a lot of stuff. Uh, how so? How did you come about seeing this for the first time? I would say it's around 2007. It came on HBO, and I, I don't think I saw the beginning for some time, but it was on a pretty solid rotation. And you know, the dialogue, um, but in the in the camaraderie between the well sort of camaraderie between the two main actors just blew me away. So I was able to catch it all at once later down the line, but it was, it was a snappy movie and it had me at right then and there. Yeah. I'll I'll give you my first impression was, uh, it's kind of, it kind of like borders the edge of being a film noir type atmosphere, but it's just a little too slick for that. It's not mm-hmm. dark and foreboding enough for it, but it feels like it's still got some of the writing. Like if it was directed differently, it could easily have been film noir. Um, there does, well, I've talked about this not too long ago about how in, when I watch certain movies, I kind of allow the story to just pull me along, even when things don't make total sense to me. And there was a little element of that to this movie where. Uh, some of the things that were occurring just felt a little too coincidental and it just kind of felt like at points it felt like a series of vignettes put together as opposed to a, uh, you know, a truly, you know, line through it narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of one of the criticisms I have. And I guess I'm going to get rid of my criticisms first. That and there were points where it felt like it was just trying too hard to be cool. I will give you that but at the same time kind of like this fringes on film noir it really also works in the meta 
that it calls out a lot of its of its contrivances or, or the, the contrived elements. Well, there's definitely yeah, there is definitely the self awareness breaking the, the fourth wall. You know, Robert Downey Jr. Down, uh, narrating it and speaking directly to the audience about, you know, basically about it being a movie. So, you know, there is that self-awareness to it. Uh, and I think that if we go back to, what is this, 2005, mm-hmm. uh, so 17 years ago, I think that was still a little bit more. It wasn't new. I mean, they've done things like that over the years many times in many different forms. But. I think it was. I think it's become more commonplace later. This, this, I would say it's most similar to a bunch of movies that came out, uh, you know, after Reservoir Dogs, after Pulp Fiction. Uh, I'm trying to think of there was one like Two Days in the Valley, something like that. Uh, a lot of movies like that that came out that just had that, you know, that very. Quentin Tarantino-esque feel to them, and this this kind of seemed to have that a little little bit of Pulp Fiction, a little bit of uh, not really Reservoir Dogs so much, uh, but you know th- there was definitely a slick edge to it, and and a very yeah. very dialogue heavy. Yes, it was very dialogue heavy, very as I mentioned, snappy. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily go for one-liners, but it it is very clever in its dialogue. Sometimes a little too clever. Well, it it, it felt like we had the prototype Tony Stark. Oh yeah. no, we literally had the prototype Tony Stark. This was the role that put Robert Downey Jr. back on the map, and John Favreau gained his insight to to cast Robert Downey Jr. as Tony from this movie. And and he, you know they they didn't. I I mean I truly feel that. You know, maybe he's not quite as clever as he is when he has people writing his lines for him. But I do feel that this is kind of Robert Downey's personality, what we see here. Because, you know, I I don't think I've seen him stretch too far off of this persona in many roles. And I can't say I've seen everything that he's done. I've never seen, what is it, Too Low for Zero or, you know, some of the other movies that he's done. But certainly every movie I've ever seen him in, there's a... You know, it doesn't. He doesn't stray too far off of the personality that we see here. No, I mean that's he. He knows where his bread is buttered, and I'm here for it because it's always enjoyable. Yeah, no, he, he was enjoyable. You know, he. I kept looking at him, and again, I hadn't seen this movie before, but I kept thinking of when in uh, the movie Civil War, when uh, when they had the scene where he was CGI'd to be younger. Mm-hmm. And he looked it's, so much like he did in this movie. Yeah, and this was only, oh, I guess this was about 10 years before now that I think about it. Well, this was Never mind. this would have been three years before Iron Man, because Iron Man was 2008. And Civil War was probably, yeah, probably around 2015, right? That's what I am checking. I know we, we did a... Uh, 2016. 2016, okay, because we, we did the commentary in my living room when you guys were in town. Yeah, we did. So, uh, you know, again, the story felt, a, you know, it felt a little, there was kind of a little bit too much in the way of coincidences as it went along. Uh, you know, the, the most one of, uh, was just uh, what's it called? Harmony and, and Harold, you know, having grown up together and he doesn't even know that it's her and they're interacting and they find themselves in the same place and all of that just, just felt a little bit like, you know, wow, that's a big coincidence. 
Yeah, and and again, a lot of these are called out. I mean, there's a point where Val Kilmer's character, Gay Perry, shows a Derringer, a small gun, literally had a Chekhov's gun. So it's 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 being clever when it does it most of the time, but not all the time. Yeah, no, I'm going to jump right into him just because I think it's such a, such an obvious thing to discuss. But Gay Perry, uh, it felt like they were being disrespectful and respectful to gay people at the same time with his character. Just the fact that they felt the need to call him Gay Perry and, and keep pointing it out and everything felt just a little bit like, you know, uh, that's going over the top. But mm-hmm. they did show him to be very, very capable. They showed him to be tough. He he was not the stereotype that we see of gay characters. So it did feel like, he, you know, it, it there was an element of inclusion to it that I thought was a good thing. Uh so, like I said, it almost feels like it was disrespectful and respectful at the same time. And Val Kilmer's performance, now, unlike Robert Downey Jr., I don't think I've ever seen Val Kilmer in two performances where I felt like he was the same guy. I will give you that, yeah. I, I was going to say, this is one of my favorite, this is maybe my second favorite performance behind Doc Holliday. Oh, I love him and when Doc I said Holliday. that, to, okay. <laughs> well, you forget it's him. <laughs> it's you such a different character. That's, I mean, that's one of the things that I find very, or I have found, I haven't seen anything with Val Kilmer in quite a while. But when I've seen things with him, I'm always impressed with, again, that there, he always seems to be stretching into a new, into new ground. You, you never really feel like it's the same guy. Whereas Robert Downey Jr., as, as charismatic and appealing as he is, you, you know, you always know it's Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, yeah. I mean, Tropic Thunder maybe being an exception, but much like Tropic Thunder was kind of cringe, there are moments in this movie where Val Kilmer's character feels a little, not in and of himself, but from the pe- the way people treat him, feels a little cringe-worthy. Yeah, and I guess I, I think that may be intentional to try and make you say, look how stupid these people are that they're treating him this way. You know, Hopefully, maybe yeah. that maybe that was the goal, as opposed to just, I, I would uh, hope so. You know, as opposed to just having them be, you know, the writers being stupid. <clears throat> so I would hope, you know, uh, so, so, yeah, I think one of the most cringeworthy and most amusing at the same time parts was the dog eating uh, Harry's finger. <laughs> so early in the movie, Harry's finger gets cut off by a door gets sewn back on and then gets taken off again only to have a dog eat it when his concern was at that moment about fingerprints, which I think was hilarious, but also a little, yeah, I did worry about the dog. If there's a bone in that finger, which is a weird thing to think about in the middle of a movie. Yeah, <laughs> that didn't even occur to me, but you know, yeah, that was an interesting thing that, you know, he was worried about in the scene of, you know, that, the police were going to come and get his fingerprints. And he was like, well, the dog has my finger. If they take the finger from the dog, they'll have my fingerprint. And then the dog swallowed. He was like, okay, yeah, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was an amusing scene, but, you know, like I said, cringeworthy in its own way as well. Uh, the, the, you know, the movie was paced. I, I thought it was actually paced kind of oddly. Like it seemed to slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up. Uh, and it didn't really feel like there was a rhythm to it. But I think that was intentional, that, you know, to kind of keep you off balance as you're watching it. Uh, but the slickness of it made me want to feel comfortable watching it. And then the 
pacing made me not feel as comfortable. So I, I thought that was a little bit of a little bit of a, a contradiction in the way it was kind of put together. It does do kind of a, a peak and valley type of thing, which isn't too far off from a mystery story or, or Raymond Chandler, as these things tend to start simply and then expand. What did, what did you think ultimately of the mystery and how it got resolved and everything? There was there were I, I it kept me intrigued and I was kind of most of the movie was on the back foot I wasn't sure and then even with that when the resolution comes about there's a twist where the one of the cases is is exactly what you think it is in the terms of of one of the main character's sister mm-hmm. and I was like that's novel that's at least refreshing enough. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I, 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 it, it kept me intrigued enough to see, okay, how is this going to end? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are they, where are they going with this thing? You know, there's just so much going on. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and maybe the best use of, of previous footage I've seen. I mean, this is before CGI was really prevalent. So Corbin Burton is a character who is shown as a, as a younger actor. And they're using, I don't think it's scenes from L.A. Law, but from a, a previous movie. Mm-hmm. And it was so seamless. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, well, because he, he, as Corbin Bernstein started to lose his hair, he had a very, very different look. The, the loss mm-hmm. of the hair really changed him. Because when he was on L.A. Law, he, he had kind of, you know, the pretty boy look about him. And then when, when he started to lose his hair, he became very hardened looking. Mm-hmm. So that you know, it, it wasn't like okay, you know, it's just a receding hairline. Uh, you know, Bruce Willis when he lost his hair, I don't think he looked that dramatically different. Corbin Bernson looked very different with with no hair. Yeah, so, and it allowed him to play some really good roles uh, as he got older. He he aged into it really well, like Sean's father on uh, Psych. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen. And him he in kind a of plays that here he, as well. He he's he's become a very good character actor supporting player Mm -hmm. i don't you know i don't think he was ever going to be the star that i think at one time they thought he might be uh you know when when la law was at its peak but but he definitely you know when you see him in things now he he's he's seems to have found his niche yes and and i I, discovering him on psych rediscovering i should say i realized yeah you're like you said he's a great character actor and he knows he kind of knows it. He knows his his role, and he owns it. And I, I appreciate him. Hmm. So the well, two two henchmen in this. I just get a big kick out of the names, Mister Frying Pan and Mister Fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to be cliches and failing. <laughs> uh, Larry Miller's always interesting. I mean, his part was. I thought his part was going to be bigger when the movie started. Mm-hmm. Than it turned out to be. Uh, he's an interesting guy. Like I, I saw Seinfeld live one time uh, in uh, Connecticut at Foxwoods, and Larry Miller was the opening comedian for him. And uh, he's he's a funny guy. And I, from what I understand, he's one of these guys who, like all the other comedians, love him. Mm-hmm. So that they're always like looking for for jobs for him. They always like everybody likes working with him. Uh, you know, he's just a really popular guy, and he, he was, you know, he was the guy in in this in this movie. Not to give too many spoilers, but uh, Robert Downey Jr. is a petty thief, and he's running from the police after a botched robbery, and runs into a uh, casting uh, call 
for a movie. And because he's so upset about the botched robbery, he's showing all this emotion. And Larry Miller is the director who sees that and, and is so impressed with his ability to emote that he, he brings him in for the role. And that's how he ends up starting to get all caught up in this mystery. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of coincidences, as I said, that occurred to get us where, you know, to, to the plot that we're in. But I guess to some point or to some extent the way that they play it, being self-aware of it, being a movie and all, it almost like forgives the contrivance. For the most part, yeah. I mean, there are still some things where he raises an eyebrow, but at least if it's going to be cliche and go down certain, you know, certain genre bits, it is at least aware of it enough to admit it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that kind of gives you a little bit of forgiveness for it. No, I, I have to say... Uh... While I found it intriguing and, and you know, watchable, like I, I was kind of trying to figure out what was going on, uh, my wife was not so enamored. <laughs> she, she didn't care for it. She, she generally decides very early on in a movie if, if it's something that hooked her or not. Mm. And this one didn't hook her. And at some point, she said to me, you know, when people recommend a movie to you, don't they want to recommend something you're going to like? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, well, I said, I think that's what he was trying to do. I don't think he said, oh, this movie sucks. Why don't you watch it? I think he said he likes this. Why don't you watch it? Well, I, I think I benefited from not seeing it point A to point B, beginning to end, because I went in somewhere towards the middle. So I got some of the better material. And, yeah, I will admit that the beginning takes a little bit to really – grab you but but i i also think you know my, my impression walking away from this and, and again this is the first time i've seen it and i only had a chance to watch it once uh but i get the feeling that watching this a second time would probably be a better experience than watching it the first time because the, the first time you're trying to follow the story you're trying to figure out the mystery you're trying to kind of you know have that narrative flow that you don't really have the way I, as I said, I, I felt like there was, you know, points where it just felt like, uh, you know, contrivance to contrivance. But I get the feeling that once you can watch it without that drive to it, that you can take, you can probably see more of the nuances of the performances and more of the nuances of just the, the creation of the scenes and, you know, what they're doing. Uh, and I get the feeling this would be more more enjoyable upon multiple viewings than it is an initial viewing. I will give you that, and especially with the performances of Kilmer and Downey Jr., when they're on screen together, it is awesome. Because they're playing off of each other masterfully. You get a little bit more flexibility in Robert Downey Jr., and of course Kilmer's solid. And to uh, add Michelle Monaghan, who plays the, the female lead, she is awesome as well, and her and, and Robert Downey Jr. have great chemistry. Yeah, so now I, I started looking, you know, looking into this a little bit, and what I saw, you know, in, in one review that had me a little intrigued was they said, you know, the focus of this movie, and you walk away not even realizing it, but the focus of this movie is sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you certainly see that it's there in the movie, but... Like, the more you think about it, the more you realize that it is a lot of the focus, because it's not just one character's motivation. It's, like, littered throughout. You know, there's, there's the early scene with, with the guy who's trying to grope 
uh, harmony and, and mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr. is trying to protect her. And, and you know, all, all these different things of abuse that go on. And if, you know, even, you know, harmony because of her relationship and all became uh, promiscuous uh, as a youth, which, you know, is, has bothered, uh, and I keep calling Robert Downey Jr., Harold or Harry, uh, to the point where he's not willing to have sex with her unless it's got the emotional component. He's not willing to just have a physical relationship, uh, you know, which, which is totally the opposite of everything else she's ever experienced. So, you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's some subtext to it, even though it's not that deep under the surface. But like, you know, reading somebody's comments on that really got me thinking about it. And they do a really good job of being subtle um, because his he was the he was the mascot who was a knight. So in, in most respects, Harry is seen being respectful not only to her in several occasions, but to a dead body at one point. So it's one of those he should be a Nora character because he's a thief. He's he's not a great guy, but he does have a certain degree of respect and dignity. And it's just not something that you, that jumps out at you. And yet he's, he's played as a ne'er do well in a lot of ways. But he's he's also far from uh, far from capable in a lot of the scenes. You know the the scene where he's trying to protect her from the guy who's groping her. The guy beats the crap out of him. <laughs> yeah, he does. You know, and he gets his finger cut off, and he's constantly being you know put upon and, and beleaguered. Uh, and and despite the fact that he is respectful of women, he accidentally pees on the corpse of a, a lady, uh, <laughs> you know, which is it's just it's horrifying and 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 funny at the same time. Uh, so there's there's so much stuff like that that goes on. But then you know, I I think you have to like I said, first of all, I think you get more out. You probably would get more out of it the second time around. But I think you also have to take this with a little bit of a grain of salt because if you're watching this thing totally seriously. Uh, you know, expecting a, a deep story, then you're going to kind of, you know, you're going to walk away disappointed. But I also think that Robert Downey Jr.'s narration in it kind of, you know, forces you out of that seriousness. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that deals with serious, really serious psychological things and heinous crimes, but does it with enough enough levity to not really make you sick to your stomach. Not by much, but just enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is a movie like if if you're not paying close enough attention, you don't realize quite how violent this movie is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is extremely violent, uh, and it's you know, it, there's there's people getting shot, people getting beat up, fingers getting cut off, you know, throughout the whole movie. Um, you know, Robert Downey, actually, Harry accidentally shoots a guy in the head because he's trying to be cool. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know how much of it I want to give away if somebody hasn't seen it and decides to watch it, but I'm going to give that away. You know, he, he's he's trying to be the tough guy, so he takes a gun, he takes all the bullets out, he takes one bullet, puts it in, and he's, you know, like, going to be a wise guy about it, and he pulls the trigger and he shoots the guy in the head, and he's like, there was a was it an 8% chance that that would, uh, <laughs> would, would work. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what happened. But, uh, you know, it, it's amusing. It, it's amusing if you don't take it too serious. Yeah. Which I guess is Shane Black's thing a little bit. Um, 
you know, he, he's, I'm just looking, uh, has written such films as Lethal Weapon, Monster Squad, Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, best known as his role from, uh, as Rick Hawkins in Predator. Sad <laughs> that that's his best known thing. Uh, but, you know, I mean, his, his, his movies do have a certain style to them. Uh, you know, even Iron Man 3, which he directed, uh, mm-hmm. you know, makes use of the same kind of narration that this does. Uh, and eventually at the end, you find out why, you know, how that's working. Uh, so, you know, there, there are certain elements that he likes to do. Uh, what do you think about this? Was this, was this movie a, a box of success, if you know? Uh, comparably, it was very modestly budgeted and it did the circuits for the film, um, the film circuits, indie film circuits. So, yeah, it was it was a box office success, but not in the way that something like Top Gun Maverick would be. See, I, I think this was a, a success post box office. I think, uh, you know, on on home video and such i think it might have been more of a success because i'm just looking on wikipedia now it's got the budget at 15 million and the box office at 15.8 million and if i remember my numbers correctly this was a little earlier because the numbers have actually gone up on that but it used to be they say you had to make uh, one and a half times your budget to be a success mm-hmm. so it made 15.8 it would have had to make like 22.5 to be a success but i do think it, it had a you know, at least from what I understand, had more of a popularity in its second go round anyway with the, uh, you know, video. What does it say here? I'm just looking here as far as box office. Downey was disappointed at the low box office, but said Kiss Kiss Bang Up ended up being my calling card to Iron Man. As mm-hmm. his performance attracted director John Favreau, the film marked Downey's career resurrection, and Black would be even brought in to co write and direct the sequel, Iron Man 3. So, yeah, that's all there. But it's got a Rotten Tomatoes approval rating of 86%, which is pretty high. Mm-hmm. And the website critical consensus reads, tongue-in-cheek satire blends well with entertaining action and spot-on performances in this dark, eclectic, neo-noir homage or homage. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a, a much better phrased way of saying what I was saying, you know, similar to a noir and, you know, good, good acting performances and, uh, you know, a lot of action or, or a decent amount of action. That's, that's the one part where I might be a little bit off on. Cause I just felt like this, there's some moments where it definitely drops down and it's like, okay, come on, pick it back up again. Or at least I felt that way. Well, and uh, I will say in those moments are, they're typically character moments. Their interactions, um, and they let the audience breathe and laugh a little between these really, when you think about it, dark, dark scenes. Like you said, there's a lot of, there's blood, there's uh, limbs getting cut off, and there's definitely a, you know, not a not a romantic chemistry, but a, a buddy cop chemistry between Downey and Kilmer, mm-hmm. which yeah. is manifested in in bickering, which is delightful. Yes. And, and but the, you know it doesn't have the stereotypical oh at the end they're the best friends in the world, you know they're, they're still kind of like annoyed at each other all the time, but mm-hmm. clearly they've developed a, res, a mutual respect. Uh, so you know it's I thought it was I I like sometimes when they go off of the uh, stereotype and and bring us to something a little bit different. Yeah, and and they and when it does do stereotype it it calls it out relatively consistently. 
Now, having only watched it once, I cannot really comment on the score. Uh, I didn't really get a feel for it in my one viewing. Did you, uh, you know, did you have any feelings about that? It was very much forgettable. Not in a bad way, but it, it blended into the movie enough that I didn't. It didn't stand out. It didn't hog the spotlight, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay, and again, I, you know, I, I didn't really get a feel for it. I, I, I always say that if if you if it jumps out at you too much, then it's not doing its job anyway. Mm-hmm. And and what I always point to is some of the most memorable soundtracks ever. You know, you go to John Williams, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, Superman. While those are incredibly memorable, memorable, and uh, you know, catchy and everything you could possibly want, I never walked out out of one of those movies saying, "Oh, and did you hear that music?" Like it still managed to be to blend well enough that I didn't, you know, it never called attention to itself, even though it was so, you know, obvious in later viewings. So if if you walk away from a first viewing of a movie. Talking about the soundtrack, it's probably not doing its job. Mm-hmm. I was trying to see who did the score. It was John Ottman, which I know him. He did uh, the score for Superman Returns, among other things. Usual Suspects, uh, Superman Returns, Valkyrie. Yeah, I'm not. I, I can't say I know. The, I have a real feeling for his music, and you know, I've never been a score expert. I usually leave that to Scott Gardner to tell me what's good and what's not. Yeah. I will give you that. So any anything else about this one that jumps out at you that you want to uh, discuss? Uh, just I, I really the performances are what carry the movie. The script is good, really good. But if these had been any other actors besides Kilmer and Downey Jr. and Michelle Monaghan, I think it really would have limped a lot more. I definitely, I, I, it, you know, it's, it's strange when you say it that way because I could see replacing – Anybody like I didn't feel like, oh, you know, that's the definitive character, but I thought the performances all were very good and I thought the chemistry was very good. That doesn't mean you couldn't have gotten somebody else who would have equal chemistry or whatever, but uh, I do think the performances were very solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and again, like I said, the chemistry was good. So I, I it probably would it probably would lose something if you had if they had cast it differently. So I can't disagree with you. Uh, so overall. I enjoyed watching it. I did not walk away feeling Christmassy, but I'm not going to argue with the Christmas. As I said, I'm not going to argue with the Christmas movie thing. Uh, for me, it was probably on the border of a high Jaws 3, low, low Jaws 2. But I suspect that if I take the time to sit and watch it a second time, that grade is going to increase. It can. I When I... When I suggested it, I, I figured in my head it's going to be a high Jaws 2, but it ends up being about a mid Jaws 2. There's a lot that I like about it, but I also think that there was there were some rickety parts and maybe some unnecessary nudity here and there that I didn't think added anything to the story. And of course, the, the language I can forgive because they actually apologize for it. Hmm. Well, other yeah, but, other than some gratuitous nudity, uh, you know, what else did you, anything else offhand that you found rickety that you would be able to put your finger on? Some of the pacing, as you mentioned, and when it, it allows itself to be co- a, a coincidence and doesn't point it out, 
like the the climax was it kind of moved into pure action movie without really any sense of irony. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it. I don't know. Maybe it, do you think it would have been better if the narration pointed that out? Yeah, I think. Or if, if yeah, and and would it make it a little bit mention, more tongue in cheek? Well, yeah, I mean, he mentions early on, why am I showing you this? Like, where's the final showdown going to be? And then he doesn't return to that theme because it was really, I believe it was about the Derringer that he mentioned, but it, it, it didn't have that sort of, yeah, I know this is unbelievable, but here's what happens. Some sort of pithy line. Right. All right. So you're, you're like mid, right in the middle of Jaws 2? Middle of Jaws 2, yeah. All right. So if... You're sitting around, I mean, this is coming out, I guess, a week before Christmas. If you're sitting around, you're tired of the of the Christmassy Christmas movies, and you want to watch something that has kind of a Christmas feel to it, but isn't a Christmas movie, this is probably a good one to pull out and put on. But maybe not with the kids. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to go as far as to say definitely not with the kids. Yeah. Uh, I would think this one... You know, you know, it always depends on the maturity of the kid. But I don't see I don't see a situation where even a mature kid under 12 is appropriate. Yeah, this is a hard R. Well, I think it's just a solid R. Not, I wouldn't even go as far as hard because it's not like there's nudity all. Of, well, you know what? You know, actually, I'm thinking about it as I'm talking. You're totally right. It's a lot of violence, yeah. a lot of cursing and there's nudity. Hard R. So, you know, if you have a, mature, a very mature 12-year-old, you could probably get away with it. Otherwise, I'd probably say, you know, give them a couple of years, get them to 15. Yeah. Then they're going to really Although, enjoy the nudity. Yes, they will. <laughs> All right. So, thanks, Dave. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you, my friend. And I am glad we were able to manage to get some time to, to go over this. Yep. Take our time out of a busy holiday schedule. And of course, I wish you and the family a very Merry Christmas and everybody out there in listener land have a very Merry Christmas or whatever holiday you choose to celebrate. Thank you. And I wish you all the same. Uh, I hope, you know, everybody enjoys listening to this and has a great time with their family or whoever the people that they love to spend time with. And we'll see you next time. Hi, we are so incredibly lost. Mr. Van Trike. Hello. You look chilly. Come back inside. Actually, I'm from back east. I'm kind of digging the cold. Ah! Fuck! He's the one who said it. Well, I can kill you here. Harry, I was thinking some more about this reality versus fiction. Oh, is that a fact? Yeah, like in the movies when a guy comes up and sticks a gun in some schmuck's back and says, uh, let's take a walk. All of a sudden, he's got a hostage. Oh, yeah, yeah I've seen that. Well, in reality... The pros like about five feet of separation. Five feet, huh? Yeah. Huh? That's so the schmuck doesn't take the gun back and make ah! him eat it. Doesn't that suck? I just hit you for no reason. I don't even know why. Watch it. Tell us where Harmony is. Fuck you, Mary. <laughs> you don't get it, do you? This isn't good cop, bad cop. This is fag and New Yorker. You're in a lot of trouble. For Christ's sake, who are you protecting? It's all over. Finney, Dexter's going down. I know about Veronica's lawsuit. I know Dexter was facing ruin. I even know he switched daughters. Which, for God's sake, actually did work for a while till last week. Yeah, what happened then? He had to kill her, huh? Harry, will you put hey, a sock in it? I just ask a question. No, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, if you ask a question, then it seems like we don't know anything, like we're okay, fishing. Okay, okay. okay. Right, right, and for the record, it was the boyfriend, the guy who flew in from Paris. He would have spotted the fake Sorry. and said, that's not Veronica. Okay, okay? am I right? Fuck you. Oh, exactly. Right. 
So Dexter had Veronica killed, threw a dress on her, dumped the body, and walked away clean, except for one little thing. Underpants. One tiny little pair of undies. Yeah. <laughs> you think that's funny, huh? I'm gonna break your nose now. Okay. Oh. I want you to picture a bullet inside your head. Can you do that for me? Fuck you. Anyway, that's ambiguous. Ambiguous? No, I don't think so. No, I think he means that when you say picture it inside your head, okay, is that a bullet will be inside your head or picture it in your head? Like Harry, form an image. Shut up. He's got Look, a point. I don't know anything about a girl, seriously. I was bluffing. You know what? I think that you are bluffing right now. Harry, what are you doing? Well, what I'm doing for the guy who likes to bluff is I'm playing a little game called Am I Bluffing? Huh? Where is she? Where the fuck is Harmony? Harry. You wanna play hardball? I can do that. Where is the girl? What did you just do? I just I put in one bullet, didn't I? I you put, put a one. live round in that gun. Oh yeah, there was like an 8% chance. Eight was percent. it just eight? Eight? Yeah. Who taught you math? math?